1: Be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out. Alrighty. One of the things that I love about podcasting most is that I get to meet really cool and sometimes brilliant people. My guest today is both. I met Marcia Shandor through Jeff Harry, who you may recall was a previous guest. And I got to say, Jeff is both brilliant and cool himself, and he is a super connector. He's already introduced me to some amazing people, and I'm very, very grateful to have met Jeff and to have been introduced to so many amazing people. Marsha's superpower is her ability to tell stories. And not just tell stories herself, but also help other people tell stories. Essentially, she helps people harness the power of storytelling by helping them create an emotional connection with their audience, whoever their audience may be. And she believes, and I agree, that storytelling is the ultimate persuasion power tool. Originally from the UK, she's based in Toronto and runs the biggest storytelling show called True Stories Told Live. She's spoken all over the world on the topic of storytelling. She's been featured in BBC, Mashable, Forbes, the list goes on. And in this episode, she shares why we have this voice in our head, but more importantly, what we should do about this voice in our head that she calls The Beast. She also talks about, and I love this stuff, the neuroscience behind why storytelling is so incredibly powerful. And she walks us through the questions she asks her clients to help them design stories that are compelling, memorable, and effective. So if you want to tell better stories, and I sure hope you do, then stick around because we're going to dive straight in to the conversation. Marsha, welcome to Inside Out. I'm so stoked to be here. Absolutely. Well, let's get started and let's talk about the fact that you can take the girl out of Russia, but you can't (laughs) take the Russia out of the girl. And I want to get really specific about your childhood growing up with a very funny grandmother who is very special to you and who gave you, I'm sure, a lot of the comedic Ability that you have today. How did that inform who you are as a storyteller? Okay, step one.
0: This is my favorite opening question to an interview I think I have ever had. Nobody has ever asked me anything like this before. My granny was like unintentionally comedic. (laughs) She, like, I don't think she meant to. She was this sort of short, round, Russian woman. She actually like fled the Bolsheviks when she was five years old and moved to Turkey and then met my grandpa after she'd got divorced from her first husband and moved back to London with him. And was at her funniest when she was becoming really senile because she mm-hmm. would mix fantasy and reality. So she was quite a serious person. So we'd be watching like Jerry Springer and she'd say, "Marshal, what do you need to understand is originally this man is from Russia, but he moved to America when he was a little boy, which is why he does not have the accent. Like not true. She does. Just- <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Can I tell you my favorite story? Please, please. please, So we were watching Diagnosis Murder with Dick Van Dyke. Mm -hmm. She was heavily involved in this murder, like asking me all sorts of questions that I really only could have answered if I'd been on his squad. And then eventually I had to put her on the pot because we couldn't really take her out to the washroom. So we had a commode, you know, one of those old fashioned, you lift up the seat of the chair and there's a potty there. And and i Put her on and she did a poo and, you know, I wiped her up, which you do with love. And then after she had these like very sort of graceful little delicate hands and she pointed one of her delicate fingers at it and said, Masha, make sure you do not remove this because they will need to examine it for evidence. <laughs> <laughs> so we have lots of stories about her, but really just oh. anyone who's from Eastern Europe. So I moved from Russia to London when I was two. Mm-hmm. And anyone from Eastern Europe will know that our currency is story. You know, I call my mom, who my mom grew up in England, but surrounded by Russians and then lived in Russia for a long time where she met my dad. And, and my mom doesn't say, hi, darling, how are you? When I call, she picks Mm -hmm. up the phone and says, so I'm in the Gare du Nord in Paris. And I see that my train is leaving in two minutes. Like she can't not tell. Wow. That's really, wow. That's so interesting. But it also meant because I was surrounded by stories that I assumed that everyone was fascinated by every story because I was. And so my stories had so much detail that my friends would just have their head in their hands. Anytime we hung up being like, can you please just get to the point? It's been 45 minutes and you haven't even left the house yet. <laughs> and so I had to learn how to edit my stories down, which was quite difficult. And I learned that by getting a job in music radio because when you're in music radio, you have to cut your stories from 20 minutes down to 20 seconds. Nobody's listening to hear you talk. Mm. And after 20 seconds, the jingle kicks in. So you have to stop talking because someone else is. So that's where I learned how to
1: get those 45-minute stories down to a manageable length. Okay. That's really interesting to me because actually in doing my research on you and like figuring out your story, I was like, okay, I'm really curious and fascinated how that played a role. And then- what you just described, it makes perfect sense because you're taking people on an emotional journey. You're making them feel it. That's one of the through lines that I've really picked up through your work is that you're helping people feel emotionally to experience it with you and Mm -hmm. have that part of your brain. And we're going to get into the science a little, little bit, but have that part of your brain light up with the audience. Before we get into the science, which we could totally nerd out on that. Speaking of nerding out, you know, when you were younger, You're kind of a nerd. And then you had this period where you became more of the cool kid, maybe more, you know, drinking and smoking and and be doing partying it up. And your mom was a a bit more willing to let the kids come and hang out at your house. Talk to me a little bit about the rest of your childhood and how it basically led you to getting a job and ultimately spending 15 years as a radio DJ. What was that journey like? Because to your point, you had to learn quickly how to tell a story, but there's a big difference between getting all the details out and taking people on an emotional journey and doing a quick story. So how did it work being a cool kid? I was just thinking about this the other day. I was never
0: cool, but I managed to like somehow make friends with the cool kids. I think I've always been quite, I think I'm maybe because I'm a furious people pleaser. I've always been quite good at like morphing between different groups, but I also just have like when I was 10 and I went to summer camp, I was one of the total nerds at school, like true nerds. had no friends for some years and then like truly in that nerdy group. But in my summer camp, I made friends with my best friend who still now lives two streets away from me in Toronto, but she was really cool. And so everybody just assumed that I was cool because we hung out together. And then similarly at school, I kind of landed in high school as one of the nerdier kids. But then my mom was just a bit more relaxed. And she also figured that if all the kids were at her house, even if there's literally 30 of them draped across the living room floor, she knows where her kids are. So she'd let (laughs) them stay over. And so all the cool kids were like, oh, we can stay at Marsha's. And I would be friends with them. But even years later, I would make friends with other kids in other classes. And they would be like, Marsha, you're not scary. They were like really disappointed because they'd spent the whole of high school being afraid of me because I was friends with Lisa Collins and Claire Rollinson, And they were the really cool, scary kids. And then they'd meet me and I'd be like, I know I'm an idiot. But I somehow fell in with them. But I was thinking about it the other day because I was thinking I kind of feel the same. Now where I feel like, especially when I speak at conferences and things. Jeff Goines from GoinesWriter.com ran a conference in Nashville for five years and he brought me in every year. He called me the awkwardness controller. And Mm. essentially my job was to get on stage and be like, it's okay. Everyone else is also terrified. It's fine if you are. And also, secretly, we're all idiots. We're not as cool as we look. And I felt like I would be like hanging out with all these cool speakers. But then I also secretly would just be like, but I'm an idiot. And then so I'd go and speak to other people and they'd be like, oh, thank gosh. You know, we don't have to pretend to be cool around you because you love us for our true idiotic selves. And I think that for me with storytelling is like, those are the stories that we we really connect to. You know, I, I dislike very few people in the world. I find it very easy to like people. I mean, people that I meet, obviously, in our political climate, it's pretty easy to, from a distance, <laughs> dislike certain groups of people. But when I meet someone, I talk to them, it's very easy for me to like people. But there are a few people who are in my life regularly at certain events who I cannot stand. And on examining that, almost always, to a person. It's because there's someone who, when I say, how's it going? They're like, oh my God, amazing. Everything's amazing. My career's going amazing. Relationship, best it's ever been. Kids, listen to everything I say. And I think on some level, I think maybe you are perfect, so you're going to judge me if I'm not. I find it hard to like those people and easy to dislike them. And I think when we show... Brené Brown says, vulnerability is the last thing we want to show, but the first thing we look for in someone else.
1: Mm.
0: And I think storytelling is such a great way to show that little bit of vulnerability, especially in a low stakes way, because I feel like we've all had that experience of listening to someone tell a story and they're like hitting all the beats and it's perfectly told. And we're like, man, that is a great story. I never want to be friends with that guy. (laughs) And equally, we've all had, especially at an event, especially if I'm going to an event, and I don't know anyone. And then somebody tells a story and you're like, I love you, new best friend. And for me, Mm -hmm. almost always, it's a story about them being an idiot in some kind of way. And it makes me feel like, oh, It's okay that I'm too, and so I feel like that's what I'm always trying to do when I'm on stage or even running workshops: is try and like upfront find a low stakes way, a way that does not affect my credibility as a presenter or as a workshop leader, to say, "Look, I'm an idiot. So if you're imperfect, that's fine. Welcome, all of us are here." And that's what, and then people are more willing to listen. I actually say a thing at the beginning of a lot of my workshops where I say, and I remember the first time I did it on stage, I was like, this could go one of two ways, but it went really well. Where Where I say, look, when I'm on stage, I'm totally comfortable. But when I'm sat where you are, I have a strong, overwhelming emotional response. And I say, you know, I'm a very positive person. My business is called Yes, Yes, Marsha. I literally have the word yes tattooed on my finger. But when I come to a workshop, or a conference and I'm not on stage, my overwhelming emotional response is that I hate everybody. Mm. And I hate them in a particular way where I think you're so great, don't you? With your fancy dress and your fancy British accent. And I think it's a British thing because I think I'm going, I'm going to hate you first because then if you turn out to be perfect and you judge me, it doesn't matter because I already hate you.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and what always happens to me is I start talking to people and because I know about the power of storytelling I start saying oh my gosh like how did you get here and how did you feel how did you feel how did you feel because as you mentioned emotions are like what connect us and other than those few people I mentioned most people aren't telling stories where every single how did you feel is like amazing because my life's always perfect and in those moments I'm like okay now I like you more because I can relax Mm.
1: the relatability factor right I mean that really says it all and you're going to hate them, but you'll end up loving them because that's in your nature. You are, even though you may have that as, maybe as even as a self-protection or defense mechanism that exists, you will ultimately end up loving them. One of the things that you say, which I'm really fascinated by, and frankly, it's somewhat uh, appropriate. Uh, I don't want to get too political now, but you believe that lack of empathy is the root of all evil. Why do you feel that way?
0: I think so, and I'm very happy to get political if
1: you want to. <laughs> but, um, it's just a rabbit hole. I mean, we yeah. can't. I don't. I mean, but but yeah. Because I think
0: that most decisions that are made that cause harm are made by people who can't empathise with the places that the harm is being caused, either because like certain orange despots currently in the White House, they don't have the capacity for empathy, which I think sometimes is neurodiverse difference and sometimes is because it wasn't modeled for you when you were growing up or because they don't feel connected. If you're the CEO of a giant cola company and you're suggesting that trade union members get murdered, you probably don't feel a lot of empathy for that trade union member's family or themselves. You know what I mean? Like there's. Whereas if you actually could really feel it, then I feel like even I'm a vegetarian, I'm not a vegan. And if I had cow factory in my back garden and I watched how terribly a lot of cows get, even you know, the hippie organic ones I try and buy for get treated, I probably would stop eating dairy. It's that kind of removal of empathy. And so I think when you have empathy, it's easier not to cause harm to the people you have empathy to. And the reason I talk about lack of empathy being the root of all evil is that when we tell well-told stories and when we listen to stories, our brains literally respond as if those stories are happening to us. Like they've done studies where they stick people in MRI machines and look at their brains. And I tell you about smelling coffee, your olfactory cortex lights mm-hmm. up. I tell you about grabbing this mug, your motor cortex lights up, specifically the part related to her movement. And so yeah. that's powerful empathy, because now you're having an experience of my story and you know, there's so many, I am wildly privileged. I'm white, I'm cis, I'm non-disabled. I am queer, but I code as straight to a lot of straight people. And so I've mostly moved through the world not being discriminated against Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And I'm never going to truly understand what it means to be racially discriminated against or to have ableism inflicted on me. But if I can hear someone tell a story about that and my brain acts like, like you've had Jeff Harry on this podcast before. And he told a story at my live storytelling show recently about being a kid in a school in the Chicago suburbs that was very white. And in true Jeff manner, it starts off like funny, funny. And then it's like, ah, oh, punches you in the gut. Really shocking. And I, that's never going to happen to me. But through going through his story with him, through listening, it, it gave me like a visceral experience of what it was Like And it's, again, all to do with the emotions, because no, I have never been a person of color having a racial slur thrown at me, of course. But when he talks about the emotions, when he talks about the pain and the shame and the fear and all of those things that come in, I know how it feels to have all of those emotions. And so I can connect with that Mm -hmm. story. And so it gives me a better understanding of what it's like. And when I'm working with storytellers, I'm always finding the small moment within the big story. So we had a storyteller come and talk story at my show who went and protested at Standing Rock in North Dakota. And, and he kind of wanted to bring like the whole big picture, but we pulled out this small moment and it was an incredibly moving story. And I'm pretty sure no one else in that room had been to Standing Rock. I'm pretty sure that most of us, like me, had never been to the kind of protest where you're at risk of getting maced or arrested. But all of us know how it feels to be somewhere where you're supposed to feel brave and to feel terrified. Mm. And all of us knows, know how it feels to be someone we're supposed to feel brave, to do something cowardly, and then to feel shame. So we could all really connect with his story. That's where I think the empathy piece comes in. And having worked with storytellers for seven years, I feel like I've like, I kind of almost think of it as like growing these extensions on my brain, like extensions on the house of all these. A lot of them are think I never want to run face first into a black bear. I never want to spend a weekend in prison being wrongly convicted, but I now have a really kind of profound understanding of what that's like through working with those storytellers. And I think that is a way, it's not the only way because activism is important and we need to do a lot more than just tell stories, but I think it is a way to grow empathy Mm. and defeat people.
1: Yeah. You may not have that experience. Uh, You may have never had it and you may not be able to relate to that specific experience, but you could relate to the emotion. You could relate to the feeling. You could relate to that small detail within the larger picture because you have that empathy. One of the things that I think a lot of people can relate to also is this concept that you talk about. I absolutely love, and I think everybody who hears it can relate to it, is this notion of this beast that's in our head. Who is that beast? And how do you Quiet it, lower the frequency, tune it down? Because you said you can't entirely eliminate it, but how do you manage it? So, the beast is the voice that sits in your head. And
0: for many of us, it's sort of ever present and it's different, you know, different degrees, but essentially says you're useless. And I feel like it, it, it often, you know, there's a lot of people who listen to this who, who create things, whether it's newsletters or businesses. And often when you're creative, the beast is going to be going, no one wants to listen to a word you have to, this has been taught before by people smarter than you, who would care about you starting a business? So I call it the beast. And I found actually giving it a spot in my room and turning to it and talking to it is something that's really helpful. And I think there's a lot of messaging in the self-development world that you have to really like love those parts of you, you know, show them, show them love, show them respect. And If you can do that, amazing. I am not that evolved. Like, to me, it's an abusive relationship. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you were to come on to this thing and you were, and and you would be like, Oh, hi, Marsha, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. Your hair's looking really weird right now, and I'm not sure about that color for your skin tone. I would, I would find it so hard to be like, Billy, thank you. Right. I appreciate you, Billy. I would just be like, Dude, <laughs> you've just insulted me. But I do think that your beast is trying to get your attention. So I think the key is, first of all, to notice it. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways to do that is to think about what your Beasts playlist is. So mm-hmm. I talked about this WDS and I have a playlist. I'm going to make you a secret web page and I'm going to add a slide of that playlist. So my Beasts playlist top three. I'll tell you the non-sweary version. You can imagine some swears. Uh, Number one is You're a Loser. That's its favorite song. Number two is you spent your whole day messing around on the internet instead of working. And number three is you have the potential to really help people, but you're never going to because you're a failure. And like it says, you know, and of course, when it doesn't start as the beast, it starts as me just being like, this is a universal truth that everybody knows. But once you start to recognize that it's saying the same things, then you can be like, oh, that's the beast. And so for me, I find turning to the room, turning to it somewhere in the room, imagining it on the floor. Mine in my head is like a little hairy soccer ball, kind of a brown hairy soccer ball and then acknowledging it, but just being like, Hey, totally see that you're trying to help me. You're actually not helping me. And then just tuning it out. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of like your neighbor having playing loud music. You can tune if it's not too loud, you can tune it out. It's still there. And that I think is the aim because I think we're never going to be able to, maybe if you've like done a ton of therapy and, Lots of meditation become really enlightened, then you can silence your beast. But I feel feel like for most of us, it shows up. But what I think is interesting is that everybody seems to have different. Everybody's beasts have different playlists. And so I was talking to someone recently, and one of his beast playlists was "You're not smart." Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Oh, mine doesn't tell me that. <laughs> like, mine doesn't think I'm a genius." But they're just like, "You have some right, smart, right, 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 right." But it doesn't tell me I'm not
1: smart. And for this person, of course, it's like, "You're clearly so smart," but our beasts don't listen to reason yeah the hit the hits change right The hits aren't always the same for each individual, and I also agree that I think maybe you could become b f f with your beast, but I also think that that's not the only route to manage it and here's the thing why why do we why does everybody have it? do you think I mean we could get like deep on this, but like what's the re- like you say it's there to help us? Maybe that's something that we could Oh, I don't think it is. That it I think it thinks it's helping us. It, right, right right, so right, right. I think there's
0: two parts to this. And one is like what it thinks it's rescuing you from. So say you're about to send a newsletter or write a blog mm-hmm. um, and the beast going this, this, you're just regurgitating something else you read and everyone's going to know you're a fraud. <laughs> By putting You're putting yourself out there. There is a chance that somebody might write a crappy comment and it might make you feel bad or that no one will read it and then that'll make you feel bad. Our beasts, I think, tend to be very young parts of us. And so children are often very binary. Everything's black or white. And so it can't see the difference between this is going to hurt my self-esteem a little bit and this is going to kill you dead. And so it's trying to save you. So one is the reason, and then sometimes it's like messaging we had, Growing up, sometimes it was modelled by those who were raising us. Sometimes it was like implicit messaging. Same with the media. You know, if you never see any female astronauts growing up, then, when you want to train to become an astronaut, your beast might be like, You're never going to do this because you've been there's some part of your brain that's like, You're there's a pretty good chance it's going to be hard for you to get this job. And then you'll be disappointed. And your beast is like, And disappointment equals full death. Mm-hmm. So it's trying to stop you from being disappointed. I mean, that's one of the reasons representation is so important. Am I allowed to be a little bit political? Yeah, go for I, it. Yeah, yeah. With our vice president elect, mm-hmm. when she was attorney general, she did a lot of awful things. She put more women of colour in prison than I think any attorney general between her. There was a trans woman who she refused to let get surgery and moved from a male prison. Like she's done lots of awful things. And having a woman, and especially a woman of colour, And especially a woman of color, you know, a black woman and a South Asian woman in terms of representation is enormous. It's huge. Like the power that that has been to quiet the future beasts of people Mm. or the present ones to inspire children. You know, I feel the same about Obama, which I know sometimes in America, one mustn't say anything bad about Obama. But to become president, you kind of have to have done some evil things. And he was not a perfect angel. But what he represented by being in that position is huge. So I think representation is very important. And then the other part is, so it's partly like it thinks it's rescuing you from something. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the other things is understanding is being like, what do you think you're rescuing me from? So I, I actually did an interactive, I do a talk about this and I did an interactive version for a corporate company last week. And, oh, my gosh, my beast was raging in advance. that so it's like, you're not a health professional. These are corporates. You've only done this talk to entrepreneur do-gooder types before the corporates. I hate it. What's wrong? And it was raging. But essentially, what my beast is worried about is that I'm going to do that presentation. No one is going to laugh at my jokes. Nobody's going to connect. They're going to write and complain to their boss, and I'll never get hired again by anyone because they'll besmirch my name. And... My beast is not wrong. There was 40 people on that presentation. For sure, there were people in that audience who were like, I don't relate to this. I don't get it. Just because you have an English accent doesn't mean you're actually smart. Like there were going to be people for sure who thought badly of me. But with knowing that, I can be like, you know what? I think there are enough people in this audience who need to hear this that I'm willing to take that hit. Because Mm -hmm. I, as a grown up, can see that it's not life or death. Mm. And I think in terms of why it's so horrible and why it doesn't just reasonably say, hey, you're about to do a presentation. I'm a bit worried that some people might dislike it is because it thinks that you're in danger of death. It wants to shut you down as quickly as it can. And shame is a really quick way to shut you down. Mm. So first analogy, say you're on some, you're standing in the road, you just stopped to tie your shoelace and I see there's a car coming towards you and you have not seen this car. I'm not going to like, Get out my phone and tap a text out to you and hope Mm -hmm. you get out. I'm going to shove you and you're going to graze your knees and it's going to hurt, but I'm going to have saved your life. And I think our beasts think the same thing. So, say you decide to take up running, your beast doesn't feel like it has time to say, hey, if you start taking up running, you might get really into it and then you might start running marathons and there's a lot of training and that's going to take you away from your family and your friends and your work and maybe you'll get an injury and just, I'm not sure I can handle that for you. So instead it says, no one wants to see you in public in sweatpants. And then it's very hard to want to go running when you're feeling that as a sense of truth. And so I think part of what's been really helpful for me is to try and see why the beast thinks this awful thing it's saying to me is helpful because then I can also say, you know, when I'm acknowledging it, and this doesn't have to be out loud, this can be like in a flash in my head, but just be like, see that you think that's a danger. Thank you. But right. it's actually noted, <laughs> <laughs> but it's not a danger. So I'm going to carry on. Mm. And so I think, survival, and I think it's the ways that our brains are evolved to like notice the bad and not so much. So the good.
1: Fascinating, isn't it? Like the evolution of our mind and our brain, which again, I want to get into the science in a moment. Here's the thing. It's like, Our beast is being this like hyperbolic, over the top, like insanely pushy entity that's telling us why we can't or shouldn't. And it all comes down to like this this self consciousness that we we ultimately have to protect ourselves from harm or from feeling bad or from being put in a situation what we which we might not like. You have a mantra that you've adapted from Helen Fielding. Do you mind sharing Mm -hmm. that self conscious? If it's not something that you have immediately, but but you got it, okay. Got it,
0: okay. <laughs> it wasn't so long I would get it as a tattoo. May I just say that your level of research, I used to, <laughs> long time ago, I had a podcast where I interviewed stand-up comedians about what it means to be a stand-up comedian. And I used to hardcore research everyone. And most interviews that I'm interviewed on the people haven't, and the fact that you have, it's an absolute delight, Billy. Thank,
1: oh, thank you. you. Um, so,
0: so Helen Fielding wrote Bridget Jones's Diary. Mm. And she also wrote another book that kind of flopped, came out after Bridget Jones's Diary. It's called <laughs> the Olivia Jewels and the overactive imagination, I think. And Olivia Jules was a kind of scrappy Lady James Bond. and But she had a thing she would tell herself when she was like being a spy and being at a party, pretending that she should be at that party and hadn't just jumped over the wall. She would say to herself, no one is thinking about you. Everyone is thinking about themselves just like you are right now. And I think I might have even added the right now because it's like the Mm. amount that you're thinking about yourself If everybody else is doing that about themselves, they do not have the capacity to be focusing on you. Like there's just none left. I
1: love that you dug that quote out. That is. Well, it's such a good one because let me just say that I often think about the fact that when I'm thinking about, oh, what does this person think? What does that person. Like I stop myself and I go, they are not thinking about me. Hmm. They're far more concerned with themselves. And I hadn't heard that quote until, until you shared it i love it and i love the add-on just like you are right now because mm. you're thinking about yourself there it's, you're, you're illustrating your own point so
0: literally impossible
1: totally yeah totally but there's
0: another there's a russian phrase called which literally means who needs you but it kind of means like what makes you think you're that big of a deal and when i used to <laughs> teach networking one of the things i'd say is just like send people an email once a quarter and people would be like, oh, but I can't, you know, or, I can't email that person I haven't spoken to for two years, who's actually really famous and successful. And I'd always be like, this person, and this is actually, I have to credit my friend Ian Merrick said this to me. I moved to London, so I first started in radio in Scotland, and I moved to London to try and get a job at this one station, XFM, and and I had all these hardcore contacts high up in the BBC, but who I hadn't spoken to for two years. And Ian was like. Message them. And I was like, I can't, I haven't spoken to them for two years. And he just like sat me down and went, do you think that the third in command at the whole of the BBC wakes up every day and goes another day and no email from that student I met once at a (laughs) conference'? Thanks a lot, Marsha Shandor, if that is your real name. Like, no, an email is so unobtrusive. And also I feel like when it comes to sending an email, like you send an email, they don't reply, you don't get the thing. Don't send an email, you don't get the thing. You're no worse off. Yeah, right. But in yeah, the same place. Things similarly, like you're not that big of a deal. And so if you walk into a party, you're like, oh my gosh, everyone can see my weird spot or my sleeve is a bit ripped, and it's like no one is paying attention to you. They will think about themselves and also not that big of a deal.
1: Mm. So let's do story now. You say stories, not that we haven't been, but we're gonna really go knee deep in stories. Perfect. You say stories are the universal catalyst for connection and go on to say that they impact us on the most primal neurological level. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we hear them, our brains feel like we're literally in the story. Not to mention that it, it releases all sorts of hormones and they make us feel in an instant, an intimate connection to the person who's telling the story. And I keep teasing this science part, right? So I'm going to tease it one more time because I want to say that most people or a lot of people say, I'm not a good storyteller. Mm-hmm. Or, I don't know how to tell stories. And you argue that it's not binary, that you're not good or bad, that, that it doesn't work like that, that it's a skill that can be developed and that could be honed. Clearly, if you're doing what you're doing, you can't just do it for only people that maybe are great storytellers. So yeah. talk a little bit about that side of it and then we'll go brain heavy yes
0: it is a hundred percent a list of rules that anyone can follow i've been doing this for almost eight years and i had never had a single person come to me who wants to be a good storyteller that i haven't sent away telling at least one brilliant story so i run a live show in toronto during peacetime, but during corona time we're online true stories toronto.com next show in january and I have a really, like, a slightly absurd two year waiting list to tell a story. And it's because I really encourage people who've never done it before to come and I sit down and I coach all the storytellers. This is how I ended up doing it for my job, was doing that for free first. Mm-hmm. And really, like, if you, some people go, I don't have any good stories. And I'm like, if you've been awake and conscious, then you have good stories because it's not about what you tell, it's about how you tell it. And we all know this because we all have that one person in our life who they can tell any story and it's fascinating. And we all have been stuck next to that person who we know did something interesting, but oh my gosh, when are they going to stop talking? Because they're killing me, this is so boring. And what happens is the first person's following the rules, the second person is not. So anyone can learn the rules. And also people often think like those people who are naturally good storytellers just came out of the womb being naturally good storytellers. Maybe there is some small percentage of people for whom it is genetic, but In my experience, people like me, who were always telling stories at some very young age, we figured out that when we tell a story and everyone listens, we feel inherently lovable. And Mm -hmm. so we practice, like as soon as anything happens to me, I immediately, I'll be walking down the street and I'll see like a teenager dressed as Santa, except just wearing boxer shorts and a Santa hat skateboarding down the street. And first I'll be like, whoa, that thing just happened. And then immediately I start imagining telling it to someone. And so by the time I see someone and say, oh my gosh, five minutes ago, I just saw this. And it might sound like this perfectly crafted story in the moment, but I've been practicing it for the whole five Mm -hmm. minutes as soon as I walk. And so I think one of the myths is you're born with it or you're not. Another thing is like you should just allow stories to just spurt from your mouth. Some people can do that, but I think mostly you want to practice, especially if you're doing a presentation or anything like that. Practice your story out loud, alone in your room is fine, but practice it and then test it out. You know, if you're on Facebook or Instagram, that's a really good low stakes way to test out stories because you can just try telling little stories and they like, gauge how people respond. And the reason why I say you don't have to have had exciting things happen to you is that good storytelling comes down to small moments and sensory details and emotions. So rather than saying, oh, I went to the Arctic and was there for a few months and I met this really interesting guy and we had a few parties and I saw three different kinds of wildlife when you're just like, Okay, like all these very exciting things happen, but you're bored. It's really getting into granular detail and emotion and saying, you know, I stepped outside my house this morning as the sun hit my face, I could feel this excitement tingling in the bottom of my stomach. And I put my hand in my pocket. The money was there. This was going to happen. And that's about going to the corner store and buying a bag of chips when you're really hungry. And so all you want to do is describe scenes. And that's why when I talk about storytelling being a low stakes way to show vulnerability, you don't have storytelling and vulnerability doesn't have to mean you saying, "I went through this terrible divorce, and I was very depressed mm. for a long time, and it was really hard and which if you're listening, you're going through that, I feel for you um but it's just about saying I went to the coffee shop and I um forgot my mask and I felt like an idiot, but then I remembered that my kid had left a pair of their pants in the back of the car, so I wrapped that around my face, and it worked fine. You know it's this little like show us an emotion that you had that was anything other than perfect because my whole life is perfect and then give us some sensory detail what did it look like how did you you know those are the questions you're asking what did it look like
1: and how did you feel
0: and just describe those moments and that's how we'll feel connected to you mm.
1: yeah and it's those granular details that excite the brain what parts of the brain are we exciting you mentioned the olfactory you mentioned mm. motor you you know and i know obviously there's there's hormones there's dopamine there's oxytocin so talk a little bit about the inner workings of the brain chemistry and How when we tell stories a certain way, it signals certain parts of our brain to light up. So when you tell a story done well, the parts of your
0: brain that would light up are the parts of your brain that would light up if you were inside the story. So that's why it's olfactory because when you smell something, your olfactory cor- cortex lights up. When you're told a well-told story about smelling something, your olfactory cortex lights mm-hmm. up. So it's totally different parts of your brain. The data processing parts are called broker's area and Wernicke's area. And that's what lights up when you're being told facts. When it's story, it's totally different parts. And it's also happening to the person telling the story. And I remember before I learned about the, brain science I used to talk about the shows that we did the storytelling shows and I used to say when someone's telling a story there's 150 people listening and you can hear a pin drop there's an alchemy in the air it feels like this energy and I realize it's not alchemy it's neurology it's everybody's brains all lighting up in the same place at the same time like a giant benign alien invasion. And you see it at the live show when somebody tells a really heavy story and then we have the intermission. Everybody's staggering around, like we just went through a round of the war together. Like it's really, it's this powerfully... Connective feeling, and the oxytocin and dopamine comes when there's. So there's a few different things that will fire dopamine, but one of the main ones is tension, Mm -hmm. and the way we get tension is by adding emotion. So if I say to you, "I drove my car into my neighbor's fence," it's one thing. But if I say, "I drove my car into my neighbor's fence and I was terrified," straight away you're like, (laughs) "Ooh, what's going to happen? Why are you terrified?" Or I drove my car into my neighbor's fence and I was so excited. Then we're like, what's happening? Is it are you in love with the neighbor? Like, are you having a feud with them and you want to break their stuff? Like, and so that's what that tension does is partly it creates something called transference, which is the thing where we feel the story is happening to us. Plus it releases dopamine, which as well as making us feel happy, is also a memory aid and helps with the information processing. So whenever I'm teaching anything, I always start with a story just to prime everybody's brains for learning. And oxytocin, um, which is bonding and trust. And especially when you have that tension and then you close that tension at the end. So you say, mm. you know, I drove my car into my neighbor's for house and, and I was so excited and then they came out and we started talking and then we were flirting and I write my number
1: to forget the insurance and we go on a date and then we're like,
0: Oh, that's why
1: information gap. Is that, is that what you, is that what
0: information thinking? gap too? Yeah. We love an information gap. Oh my gosh. We love it when it gets closed, you know, information gaps are, the reason why there's BuzzFeed headlines that say 12 weird things dogs did. Well, you'll never believe number four. Even if we don't like dogs, like we'll click on that. Or mm-hmm. when you're watching Netflix and it's counting down and you know you have to be up for work in the morning, but you're like, I'm just going to watch until the credits on the next episode. You know, I'm bed. <laughs> I'm just going to read the first page of the next chapter because we're desperate to close that information gap. But it feels delicious for us. And so that's what gets the oxytocin and the... And the dopamine flowing. And again, when it comes to building trust, whether you are a leader who needs to build trust with your staff, whether you are an entrepreneur who needs to build trust with your audience, you know, if you're selling anything, whether it's a service or a good for money or for them to sign up to your mailing list or listen to your podcast, you need people to trust you. And so literally oxytocin. So if if my brain starts flooding with oxytocin, I trust you more. And just the act of me trusting you more, if that's clear to you, you start to trust me more. And then mm. your brain starts flooding with oxytocin and then I start to trust you. And it's just this lovely little like oxytocin loop. And oxytocin we know of as like the love drug. It's the drug sure. that babies bond with their mothers over as the drug when people fall in love with each other. It's a really helpful thing, both to like have a nice time as a human. And also when you want to ethically sell things, if you can make people feel like they trust you, I mean, don't use it. I guess you could use it unethically. <laughs> Tell some really compelling stories and then just like totally sell them something that's broken. Don't do that though. I think if they're listening to you, they're probably anyone that's listening to this podcast essentially has enough morals. They want to become a better person and a
1: nice person. Let's hope so. You're meeting with a client and you've, you've, this is clearly the way we've been telling stories since the days of fire and for mm-hmm. a millennia, right? And It's, it's how it, we passed information down. Yeah, it it is. Look. It is the oldest form of communication before writing, before everything that we have today in the terms of being able to speak like you and I are. But it, And it was passed down from generation to generation. So we, we naturally have this ability, but some people have been able to practice the skill and, and some people haven't and some people have learned it from their grandmother and and other people, and and, and they've had it modeled for them. When you're meeting with a client, what's the first thing that you look at? Do you ask them a lot of questions? Like, Walk us through a little bit of the building blocks of your approach to helping. It could be an executive. It could be somebody that is just going to give some speech at an event. How do you help them get their speech to a point where they can emotionally connect with their audience and and have the the type of experience that we've talked about in our conversation today.
0: Mm -hmm. So when it comes to meeting with people who paying me money in any respect, as opposed to just telling, you know, who, who who want to tell stories in order to do something other than just purely entertain, um, then I have a bunch of questions that I ask. And actually this I'm going to make you a secret webpage. That's yesyesmarsha.com forward slash insight out. And on there, I'm going to add a PDF that I have, which is four questions to ask yourself before any talk or presentation. I would add before any blog, before any newsletter, because when it comes, first of all, when it comes to telling stories, we have to pick which stories to tell. But even that, every story we tell is edited. If we didn't, the story would be like, so then I got on the call and Billy was sitting there and behind him was a couch and then behind it was some wood and then there was a lamp and it was a rhombus shape and then he had these headphones. They, like every story would be bananas and go on for 40 years. Mm. So we edit every story we tell. So in terms of figuring out how do you edit it, the questions I'm always asking are, who's in the audience? Demographic is kind of my least important bit but it's always helpful to know if they all happen to be parents over the age of 30 or they all happen to be you know skateboarders under the age of 19 then that's really helpful but the next question the most important question are what problems do they have that your subject can help them solve what problems or pain points and specificity on this what what is the problem that they think they have? Mm -hmm. because often when we, especially for anyone that does service-based stuff, we know the problem they really have. So actually an example that I talked about in the first time I talked about the beast on stage was I worked with a coach called Kate Reardon, and I was feeling like I just sit down to work every day, and by the end of the day I just feel like I've messed around all day and I've achieved nothing. And Kate is very smart. If she had said to me, and this, it was from her that I first kind of learned the concept of the beast. If she had said to me at the beginning of the year, we need to work on your relationship with shame. I would have gone, "Um, no, we don't. I have the right amount of shame. If I had any less, I don't, I would get out of bed in the mornings. But she's very clever. So she said, let's work on like systems and delegation. And then halfway through the year, she started introducing this idea of, I just want you to notice your relationship with shame. And that was the thing that had the most profound effect, not only on my happiness, but on my success and on my productivity. Mm -hmm. But I was not ready to hear that at the beginning of the year. I work often with a lot of coaches and when I say, what do you do? They say, oh, well, you know, I help people uh, align with their true selves. And I always say to them, unless you are working with people who are already life coaches, nobody is sitting around with their friends being like, oh, you know what I wish I could do? Align with my true self. You mm-hmm. know what I wish I had more of in my life? Joy. Wish I had more joy. Like people don't speak like that. They say, you know, I'm doing this job, and everyone else keeps telling me I'm successful, but I'm actually miserable. And I feel like I used to kind of enjoy my weekends, and now I just feel like I'm slogging through them. So you've got to figure out like what are the problems that they think they have, and what are the words and phrases they use to describe those problems. And there's two ways I think of doing that. And one is talk to people and ask them, but sometimes people can't articulate things. So the other way is if the problem is one that you have ever had, then like go back and ask your past self. I have an exercise that I take people through when we're working because as well as doing storytelling, I work with people on sales pages sometimes Part, and, and messaging partly because people would come to me and say, I want to tell my story. And I'd say, okay, what's the problem you solve? What's the desire you deliver? And they would go, uh, uh, uh. And I'd say, okay, we can work on your story. No one is ever going to read it or hear it because mm-hmm. you first have to find those people and show them that you are for them. So I have this visualization where I take you back to a time when you had that problem and we go through all the sensory, like how did it smell and and how did it sound? And then how did you feel and where did you feel that in your body? And then what are you thinking? And so you want to get those down and then you want to ask where do they wish they could be or where can your talk or workshop or service potentially get them to? And not even like immediately after your talk is finished, suddenly all those problems are solved. But like if they were to continue on that trajectory, where would they end up? And then the next question I always ask is, what is the goal of your story or of your talk, both in terms of good for the world and in terms of bringing money or glory to you? Mm -hmm. So the, the beast talk that I mentioned, there's a line. So this is one I did at the World Domination Summit, which... As a side note, I didn't think anyone other than the people at the conference would watch that talk. So I swore on stage, which I never do. And now it's <laughs> like 30, views on YouTube and I wish I could bleep the swearing out. But in that, I started by talking about what my daydream of how I imagined that talk was going to go. And it ends up with me being like crowd surfed out of the auditorium. But at one point I say, I walk on stage and from the first word, all of you just start crying, and everybody laughed. And then I said, "I'm a storytelling and speaker coach, so tears are one of my metrics." And everyone laughed like it was a joke, but that was actually a hundred percent advertisement for my services. I told <laughs> everyone, and they got work off the back of it. People, are, oh, she's a. Speaker coach, oh, I guess I could hire her. Um, Anyway, and so I ask those questions, and then you use those questions to edit your story. So, say you want to tell a story that shows them why you do the work that you did, and it's because you've been where they've been, you're going to pick a moment that is illustrative of you being in that pain that they're in. Pain, like sometimes means like mild inconvenience, you know, Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be dreadful, terrible pain. And then if you want to show them that your isht works, then maybe you'll pick a moment. And when I say story, I mean a scene, a moment of what it's like to be in a situation where that thing works. So say you make... I don't know, watch straps that stop the watch from falling off your hand. You might tell a story at the beginning about how, you know, yet another watch has fallen into the dishes that you're doing and now you're going to have to buy another one. And then maybe you tell another story about when you went trampolining and your watch stayed fast and it made you feel so good and you throw in the sensory details and the emotion and everything. And so that's how you edit your stories. And I don't think that every story you tell as an entrepreneur has to be about the pain that you're in. I think it can be adjacent stories. I try and do a lot of that. But you're just always thinking, like, what do they care about and what are they going to be able to relate to? And so you ask yourself those questions in advance. And then the other question really for any storyteller is, what do I want this story to achieve? And sometimes the answer might be, I want it to make me look really cool. That's okay. You just make sure that you include the details that make you look cool and take out the ones that you don't. Um, I have a video that I've made that hasn't gone up on YouTube yet, but where uh, I'm just telling... Billy, I really laugh at my own jokes a lot. I don't know if you've
1: read it. <laughs> yeah, I do too. There's <laughs> okay. an example
0: where I, where I have clued the details that make you look cool and take out the ones that don't. And so I a lot of my videos are just me talking to other versions of myself in different right. wigs. I
1: but in him. the video,
0: yeah. as the example, I have me going, and then I was dirty dancing in the club with Prince. And then other me is like, yeah. And then I go, Charles. And the other one's like, no. Oh. <laughs> and so those are the questions that you want to ask and then the final question that I ask is if you could only if I were to say to you I'm so sorry I know you thought that you had a keynote and it was 45 minutes and you and it was going to be in two months actually it's right now and it's 30 seconds go like Mm. if you if you only had that what would you say what's the thing you absolutely have to say so in that beast talk it was I think like 23 minutes or the 45 minute version I did the other day but if I only had 30 seconds I would say if you have a horrible voice in your brain that says mean things to you, you're not alone and it's possible to tune that voice out and have a nicer life and change more lives. So that's my like third, second version. And the reason I do that is because anything in your talk or even in your story, like what are you trying to get across that will help you edit because you might be like, this is a great point, but do I have to have it in my talk for it to make sense? No. And so Mm. we're going to cut it within reason the more you can edit things down the clearer your message that was a real shock to me in radio that we had one boss who just would let us ramble on for three or four minutes and then the new boss came in who was like 20 seconds and then the jingle drops in and everybody else at the station was freaking out and i was like guys this is going to make us ninjas because when then the next boss came in radio very fickle industry (laughs) when the next boss came in and we could suddenly speak for a minute or two no word was wasted You know those people who you talk to and you just kind of zone out a lot because they tend to say the same thing two or three different times? Mm -hmm. It stops you being like that person. People listen to everything you have to say. They don't skim read. They don't, like, drift off because they know that if they drift off, they've lost the story and so they want to stay right with you. And when you can learn to edit down, that's the power. It's like editing down and then getting the most bang for your buck with what you do use. What's the most powerful way I can say this? The thing I always think when you're – Writing a talk, and this is the same with writing any kind of copy for your website, is imagine every word costs
1: $20. Mm.
0: Where can you save yourself some imaginary dollars?
1: Yeah. Well, you were forced to do it, right, in your radio days. And then you kind of went back and forth based on the whoever the person was that was calling the shots. But ultimately, it was a huge learning lesson for you. One of the lessons that you also learned and, and teach now, and you used two words as you were describing that, was editing and scenes. And this mm-hmm. idea of when you tell a story, you're kind of making a movie inside the brain of your audience. And you break a, a movie up, and as you illustrate this concept, into kind of three different types of ways to tell the story. Can you talk a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. So, if you think about a movie, you have voiceover scenes, montage scenes, and action
0: scenes. So, voiceover is disembodied voice from the future, giving context or philosophy. So, if you think of like Morgan Freeman at the beginning of Shawshank or Old Boy, or like, I've actually never seen Goodfellas, but the other day someone was like, that has a lot of voiceover. Totally, it? yeah, yeah. That yeah. would be relatable to much of my audience, even though I haven't seen it. But so, voiceover, disembodied voice from the future, giving context or philosophy. Then you have montage. So, that's your Rocky train scene. That's like Hitch, Will Smith, teaching the nerdy guy how to dance. What montage does is it helps you get a lot of action covered in a short amount of time. So one of the examples I sometimes show in my workshop is Dirty Dancing, Learning the Steps Scene. What happens is we have hungry eyes and we switch like scene, 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 scene. And we do that so we don't have to watch 17 hours worth of Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze practicing dance steps. Although, as a side note, if they had that on their DVD extras, <laughs> I'd I watch that. <laughs> and so it's done to save us time. And then there's action scenes. An action scene is everything is happening in real time, all from the perspective of one or a couple of the characters. And most movies are mostly made up of action scenes. Sometimes it's slow-mo, but usually it's all happening in real time. So most movies are mostly made up of action scenes. If you had a whole movie that was voiceover, that's basically an audio book. If you had a whole movie that's montage, that's like a super long music video, it's not a good movie. Mm-hmm but they use montage and voiceover to get from one set of scenes to the next. So it's the same with stories. And the difference between those three kinds of scenes is to do with how much granular detail you get into. So say I to tell the story of this interview so far. I might say... Um, Billy and I did an interview. I was so interested in the work he'd done in TV in my home country of the UK, and I was excited to get to talk about storytelling things. So you have a sense of what happened, but you don't really know what that was like. And then montage is little flashbulbs of pictures. So Billy and I sat in the interview. We talked about the Beast. He did some deep cut research on Helen Fielding. Quote. We made funny jokes about my grandma. So you get more of a sense of what it's about, but you don't really know what this interview was like, but if I say, I get on the call and within five minutes, Billy and I are laughing. We're trading things back and forth. I'm saying this is far too interesting for actually us to talk. We need to start recording and get on the podcast. You have a much better sense. It's like, what did it look like? How did I feel? That one I feel like could even go into more detail of like the way that, you know, we were looking on the video and there was his beautiful wood background with my blue mountains and, you know, knowing that he's on the West coast and I'm in the East coast, <laughs> and, like all of these things you can include. And it's, it's much more engaging and that's what all the magic when I talk about scenes, that's what I mean It's just action scenes. And any story that has narrative is just a collection of action scenes. I have the stories for my show are around 10 minutes which, by the way, there's a, I'll put a link on the secret website, but there's a bunch of them. If anyone's interested, there's a bunch of them on. If you just search True Stories Toronto on YouTube, you can find a bunch of them. And in 10 minutes, you've got around one to four action scenes. And then you might use voiceover and montage to bridge from one set of action scenes to the next. Because any story that covers any passage of time, you can't tell the whole thing in action scene, because right. nobody has four months to listen to your story. And a lot of it was boring. You were just lying asleep with your eyes closed, breathing in and out for eight hours. So you you don't need to describe that in real time, and, and then I he, breathed again,
1: and then I took another it, breath, and then I took it. Exactly. It does, doesn't work.
0: Great art piece, not a good story. <laughs> and so when it, so often when it comes to editing those longer narratives, it's just about cutting action scenes and asking yourself which are the action scenes that I have to have in here in order to get across. So I just worked with a client who is happy about me talking publicly. He was talking about, we're working on a long form story. It's going to be around 30 to 45 minutes. And it's about his experience of being gay in Toronto in the 80s. And so there are parts in there about him not coming out to his parents. There are parts about him going and petitioning to get gay and lesbian rights into the Ontario Human Rights Code. And so as we're building that story, we're having to decide, okay, which scenes are in here? So what are the things we need to get across? We need to get across that it was not easy to be gay in the 80s in Toronto. We need to get across, you know, there'll be certain things where it's not easy to come out to his family. So we have a whole scene of him deciding to come out to his family, and then his mom and his grandma coming home and saying, oh, they're trying to get gay people into our schools, it's disgusting. And him being like, I can't do it. Even the whole story starts with a scene of him bumping into his mum's boss in a gay bar and panicking. Mm. And then the mum's boss saying, you can't tell anyone I was here. And him saying, oh, well, to tell anyone I was here, I'd have to tell them that I was here. And so that show that tells us so much about what his experience was of being gay when it came to his family. But... He's doing a version of it this week, which is 20 minutes. So what we did was just cut out a bunch of action scenes. So we didn't need all of them. So it's like, okay, if we're telling a shorter story, what's the point we're trying to get across? And what can we lose from that? Maybe we don't need that scene in the gay bar. You know, maybe we don't need the scene with his family because we've got another scene that gets that across
1: much better. Mm, Yeah. And, you know, and a lot of this comes back to this central concept and theme that you've talked about, which is telling stories makes strangers instantly feel like friends and you have four words that you say are like the most powerful words what are those four words those four words are you are not alone and when we can tell stories that are vulnerable stories
0: that people relate to then you're saying to them you're not the only one who goes through this and i actually talk about this a lot when i work on sales pages with people and this comes back to that pain point language we were talking about. And let me just say that is a kind of sales page that's like, listen, you wise up, you're a failure. And unless you buy my thing, you're going to continue to fail. Like, those don't work for me or my people. Oh, they work yeah, for I
1: totally agree with you. Oh, but yeah. I think
0: if you can describe those pain points in a storytelling, like I, th- I think a sales page is a story told in the you form. So it's basically a story about your client's pain, where they are right now, mm-hmm. and a story about where they wish they were. And then you introduce yourself as the bridge from one to the other. If you can put in some of that detail, if you can say, you know, you say you're helping people who are starting a business, if you can say sometimes you wonder if your family are right and you should go out and get a real job, anybody who's ever thought that is immediately going to be told you are not alone because Mm -hmm. they're going to think, well, you wouldn't have bothered to go to all the effort of sticking this on a sales page if I was the only person alive who felt like this and so you're telling them they're not alone you're telling them that they belong and you're telling them that they belong not when they have fixed themselves you know not when they've got quote-unquote better but where they are right now you're telling them it's okay to be who you are because you are not the only person and as humans we crave belonging more than anything else more mm, than happiness hierarchy a... of needs. it's like food shelter belonging and so when you can put that stuff on a sales page or in a story, you're saying to people, "You, it's okay to be who you are. You belong. You're giving them the thing they crave most in the entire world. And if that's on a sales page, you're giving it to them before they have spent a dime on you, which from a service point of view is huge. Mm. And from a sales and marketing point of view, if you're giving me the thing I crave most in the entire world and I haven't spent any money, what happens when I spend money on you? Mm-hmm. Even when I did this beast talk for this, corporate group last week, you know, my beast was being like, none of them want to hear about it. And my favorite bit of feedback I got was I felt like she was inside my head. And when somebody says that to you, when somebody reads your sales page or reads your newsletter or reads your blog and says, I felt like you were inside my head, what they're saying is I'm not talking about this to anyone. And I didn't know anyone else felt this way. And you just told me that it was okay to be me. And that's huge. And I want to say as well with the stories, if you are an entrepreneur, if you're using story or even whatever you do, if you're using stories to connect with people on a mass scale, whether it's through blogs or newsletters or talks or webinars, all you need is that action scene. All you need to make all those exciting things in your brain happen is one action scene. I wrote a blog a while back when I first, um, this is a few years ago when I first started learning about The Black Lives Matter, that there were things that I was supposed to do because like most white, cis, non-disabled people, I was like, I'm not actively racist. My job is done. And so I started (laughs) to learn that it wasn't. And at the time, Mm -hmm. I couldn't find anything else that had kind of collated the things that I'd learned. So I wanted to write a blog about it. And I wanted to start with a story because I always start with a story. But of course, I can't tell a story about being racially discriminated against because I've never had that experience. So instead, I told a story about sitting in the bath with my four-year-old niece and she says, I'm going to marry daddy. And I say, okay, well, with that logic, you know, you could also marry mummy. And she says, no, there has to be a mummy and a daddy. And I explain, no, there can be a mummy and a mummy and a daddy and a daddy and a mummy and a non-binary person. And then I said, um, and I gave some more like sensory details of the water swishing and her little confused face and the love I felt for her. And, And then I said, as a queer person, I've been talking about LGBT issues to my kids, to the kids in my life for years. Mm -hmm. I haven't been talking about race. I've realized I have to. Here are some other things that I've realized. Mm -hmm. Now, no one is going to make a movie out of Angelina Jolie explains queerness to her niece. Like, I would watch that movie, but no one's going to make it. But it's just that action scene. And we've all read those blogs where it's like, a blog about how you walked your dog this morning and you saw a flower. And then it made me think about when you start a business, it's a bit like planting a seed, you know, like that. You can pretty much massage any message into any story. And it's just, I call it getting in the boat. When you can tell a really compelling story up front, everybody's brain, like they're just with you. They're like, I like you. You have credibility because you've shown me that you understand my problem. You've shown me that you're going to be safe with me, especially if you do anything service-based. You've shown Mm -hmm. me that like when I do the beast talk, I show people up front that, because I always start with some kind of story about my beast coming out. The story, last week for the presentation I did, I talked about dreams of what lockdown was going to look like for me and how I was going to learn Russian and become fluent. And then I was going to start baking. And then, you know, TV producers (laughs) start with a great Russian bake-off and they were going to ask me to be the host. And then that was going to be the best TV show in the world. And then they'd offer me the Russian presidency. But then I said, what actually happened is I didn't look at the Duolingo app for my Russian. I didn't bake a single thing. I sent a lot of emails. I was very active on social media. And after four weeks, that's when my beast unfurled its tentacles, put its ear to my lips, and said, you, It's been four weeks and you've done nothing. And so right up front in that talk, I'm saying, if you think these things too, you are safe. And if you come and say to me, Oh, I, you know, I didn't get anything done yesterday, and then I said all these awful things to myself, I'm not gonna go, oh my gosh what's wrong with you, you loser? And so if you can tell a vulnerable story up front, you're saying to people, you are safe with me. Mm-hmm. And so that gives you a lot. And also it just excites their brain in all these different ways that facts don't. So then it's like, they've all got in the boat and they're just like, "Where well, are you going to row us, Billy? You can kind of tell them anything after that because they are on board with you. And so that's why I love when people start with a story.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they feel it. And that's what it's all about. They connect with the feeling marcia i am so grateful this has been an absolute joy and i feel like we could talk for hours we didn't even get into the networking which we could do on another show i'd love to have you back at some point you can find marcia at yes yes also facebook youtube check out her youtube videos they're so creative she's talking to herself but herself is another version of herself with wigs and characters and aliens and it's just hilarious also on linkedin twitter instagram always yes yes Marsha where and i know you're gonna do a secret page so is that yes yes com forward slash inside out yeah and i'll stick i have a storytelling checklist i'll stick that up there and i'll stick the four questions to ask before you do any
0: presentation or webinar or anything like that
1: and as maya angelou says people will forget what you said they'll forget what you did but they will not forget how you made them feel Marsha thank you for being on inside out thank you philly Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. If you like this show, the best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform.